no one likes to have their their work go unnoticed. Uh, all of us, we work hard on something. Uh, one of the things that could be uh, discouraging in the Christian life is just the feeling that, hey, we're working on something, we're, we're working for the Lord, and no one seems to notice. Uh, one of the things that we ought to be able to know is that God always sees the work that we are doing for him. He always knows the work that we are doing in Christ uh, for his name. At the same time that no one wants to have work that goes unnoticed, no one wants to have someone come behind them and undo the work that they've done. And think of the, the work, you're working on a project sometime, you're working on something hour after hour after hour, and you, you feel like you have it just right, uh, and then someone comes behind you and undoes it. That same feeling that you have of someone destroying your work, either, either maybe un- unintentionally, perhaps with malice. Think of how God thinks about those who come behind him and undo his work or attempt to, uh, either unintentionally or even uh, intentionally, even with with malice. Well, that's what I want you to see today is that that nothing goes overlooked by God. God is the one who is doing his work of building up his church, and he notices all the work that you are doing to build up his church, and he's also noticing the work that you are doing against it, if you are. Today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 3, but before we kind of dig in, that's mainly where we're going to be, that's mainly where we're going to dive in, that's where we're going to dig in and, and have most of our time. Before we go there, what I want you to see first is go to, go to 1 Corinthians 1, and we need to understand what is the problem that Paul is, is addressing. What is it that he's talking about? What I want you to see is I want you to see God's glory, that Paul is defending God's glory. Look at 1 Corinthians 1 verses 10 through 12, and then we'll just flip over a page to 1 Corinthians 3. This is what 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 12 says. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, what I mean is that, there, that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Now flip over a page and just read 1 Corinthians 3, 5 with me. 1 Corinthians 3, 5. It says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. What? Paul is already in chapters 1 and 2, he's already given multiple reasons why this this problem that they have in Corinth, they ought not be having it. They are identifying with teachers, they are are, are boasting in the wisdom of man, the power of man, and he's given them multiple reasons. He's already gone on for for several uh, several verses. We've already had multiple sermons on, on, hey, let's deal with this problem of dividing and and basing ourselves and and what men think and what men say and and how they say it and the cleverness of their speech or or, or their their plausible words. And Paul has gone on and on about, you ought not do this. This is is not the way that the cross Christ. Uh, was preached this is not the way I preach to you you are not wise according to human standards this is not the way that things are supposed to be and now in first Corinthians 3 5 he's just gearing up to go after it some more he's he's going to talk about it again he's not he's not stopping he's it, we could almost skip straight from first Corinthians 1 10 through 12 straight to first Corinthians 3 5 and he's gearing up to go at it again and so I, you just kind of I, I want you to understand what's the big deal 
why, why does Paul see such, uh, such need, such necessity to, to dethrone human wisdom, to dethrone human power? Why does, he, why does he have to get there that way? And the reason is, is because God's glory is at stake. Whenever men boast in other men, whenever we boast in, in human wisdom or human power, especially when we are basing our salvation on it, God does not get the credit that he deserves. God does not get the glory for the salvation that he has caused. That's why Paul's going on this way. That's why Paul wants to make sure of, of all the serious problems that the first Corinthians, uh, that the, the church in Corinth is dealing with, he wants to make sure that they are not boasting in human wisdom or human power because God's glory is at stake. I wonder if you think that way. You think the way that Paul thinks. For, for many Christians, God's glory is very light. That is not, that's not a good reason to go on and labor on about, about all these problems. And, and what's the big deal? So you like one preacher better than another. What's wrong with that? Why, why you got to make such a big deal about it, Paul? Can't you move on? I mean, I mean in a couple of chapters, we're going to get to a, a man who is sleeping with his father's wife. I mean, that's a, that seems like a real problem, okay? But for Paul, what's the problem that he wants to get to first? Maybe even we could think of it as a bigger problem, and that is that, that you are boasting in man's wisdom and man's power because you do not understand what God has done. You are not giving glory. You are not giving credit to God. He is the one who saved you. He's the one. And so I want you to know that. It's not, it's not what Paul has done. It's not what Apollos has done. It's not what, it's not what Peter has done. They're just servants. God is the one who saved you. And so the, the next thing that I want you to see there is God's workers. Who are these men? Uh, he's, he's gearing up. He's, he's making sure that we understand that, that God, God is the one who gets the glory. So he needs us to understand who God's workers are, what they are. So read verses 5 through, through 9 with me. It says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted. Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. Look there in verse 5. It, 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 you see there in verse 5, it doesn't say who then is Apollos or who then is Paul. It says what are they? Uh, that, that kind of already sort of takes them down a notch. Uh, that, that is literally the, uh, the, the way that it should be read. They are servants through whom you believe. That is, they are instruments or tools of God. And notice whenever you're, whenever you're reading the scriptures and you see a word that's, that's something like by or through, that's the idea of instrumentality, that this is just something, this is the way that God is doing it. Well, you shouldn't get any glory from that. I mean, on the one hand, we appreciate a good tool. You know, you want to you wanna put a hammer in a board? You know, oh, excuse me, you want to put a nail in a board? You use a hammer. You want to you wanna get the water from the, from the water spigot out to water the, the yard? You know, you, you run it through the hose pipe, you put it in the sprinkler, it sprinkles it everywhere. 
you, you want to mix up uh, the cookie dough, something that happens in my house fairly, fairly frequently. Okay, you want to mix that up, you use the mixer. You use, you, these are instruments. And, and, and in, their, in their place, we appreciate a certain instrument. Uh, Paul, is not, Paul is not denigrating uh, those who preach and teach God's words ultimately in other places, places like 1 Thessalonians 5. He will tell, uh, he will tell uh, the churches to esteem them and respect them. He will talk even in 1 Corinthians 16 about how there are men who ought to be held with, held with honor. But ultimately, they're just tools. They're just instruments in the hands of God. It is God who is doing the work. God, God assigns them. God is the one causing the growth. Now, we, I talked a little bit about instruments. The, the actual analogy that Paul uses is that of workers. Field hands. Guys who are out there, they're, they're just picking up. Uh, they're the ones who are picking the corn out of the, the stalks. They're the ones who are, are picking up the beans. They're the ones who are cutting, uh, cutting, cutting up the, uh, uh, harvesting the, the wheat. They're just the ones working, and, and God just assigned to each of them something to do. He says, you go out in this part, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. And they are, that is simply who they are. And Paul talks about what he was, what he was doing. He says, I planted. Paul was the one who came to Corinth first. He was the one who planted the gospel there. He was the one who started the church there. He stayed there for 18 months teaching and, and getting this church uh, organized, as organized as he possibly could, teaching the, teaching the gospel, teaching God's word, teaching, uh, it says that he knew nothing but cross and him, uh, Christ and him crucified. So he's teaching them about Jesus Christ. Later on, behind him comes Apollos. And he says, Apollos planted. Paulus, uh, he came and he, he was teaching there and he was doing these things and, and he was doing, uh, he was, he was uh, watering, he was taking care of the people there, he was contributing there, he was building up there. But then he says, Paul says, but God gave the growth. Uh, literally it is God was the one giving the growth. So at this point in time when Paul was doing his work and there was growth happening, it was actually God who was giving the growth. When Apollos was doing it at this point in time, it was God who was giving the growth. Anybody else who comes along behind Paul and Apollos and, and, and there's growth happening at that point, it is God who is, who is, who is the one giving the growth. Always, always, uh, the idea there is that Paul and Apollos, they're, they're doing their jobs, but always it is God who is giving the growth. And then you look at verse 7, and he, he, there's this explanation and conclusion here. He says, uh, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. They're not the ones who are significant. It's God who gives the growth. says, but he who plants and he who waters are one. That is, they are working for the same master. They are working with the same master's purpose. How could, you, how could you esteem Paul more highly than Apollos when they are both just working for God? That's all they are. They're just servants who are doing their work. And you know, on the one hand, the analogy fits with the, with the actual work of the, of the gospel, of, of preaching and teaching God's word. I mean, I mean, when you're a farmer, it's work. You're, you're plowing, you're cultivating, you're sowing, you're watering, you're, you're irrigating, you are... You are uh, uh, fertilizing. You're you're doing all these things to make to do everything that you can to work hard to make it to make it work, and yet you are not the one who can make it work. God is the one who gives the growth. God makes it happen. And so we shouldn't esteem one more highly than than another. They are simply working together. They're simply the ones that God has given to do the work. 
one to do one thing, another to do another. They are, they are, they are working for God, though. And he says, and each, this is the last part of verse 8, he says, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. On the one hand, there's this, there's this odd use of, the, of, the, of wages, okay? So what, is, what are these wages that they're working for? They're not, the, they're not working for forgiveness or for justification. Paul uses the same kind of language in some place like Romans 4 uh, to say that if you were to work for forgiveness or justification as one who works for wages, then you cannot receive forgiveness or justification. You cannot work for your right standing before God as if you were working for wages. God, is, God doesn't, isn't owing you anything. All of forgiveness, all of justification, all of righteous standing before God is a gift from God. Also, he's not talking about the wages that a gospel worker would receive. Uh, you know, Paul can talk about in some place like Galatians 6, 6, about, about uh, you should share all good things with those who teach. He's not talking about that kind of thing. He's not talking about the way that gospel, gospel workers should be supported in their work. He's not talking about that. This, is, this, this wage that's being repaid is not from those who are being taught to those who teach. It is from God. God is the one who is going to pay them their wages. But you look at what he says. He says they will receive his wages according to their labor. We have to do justice to what Paul says. And that is that one of the motivations in the Christian life is that God repays people for their work. So you have these, you have these men. They're working and they are working with the expectation that they are going to be paid by God. Not, not forgiveness, not justification, not righteous standing before God. But he is motivating them to work hard in the Christian life as a worker for God by the reward that is set before them. I want to stress this because in a lot of cases, there are some people who will who will try to they will talk about the only appropriate motivation for the Christian life. You know, as if the only appropriate motivation in the Christian life was love or the only appropriate motivation in the Christian life was gratitude. The thing is, is that, that that is God knows the way that we work as human beings. He knows that we will work with a future orientation, that we will work for wages. How many of you would stay at your job tomorrow if you knew that, hey, in two weeks you're not going to get paid anything? Maybe some of us enjoy our jobs that much. But for a lot of us, we would quit because we would know that we're not receiving wages at the end. Well, God knows how to motivate us. And he puts out there rewards. In, in fact, I, I think that some would be, they would think, see what Paul is saying here as crass. Like, how could you talk about wages? We know that Paul doesn't intend for us to work for our salvation. He, he's already spoken about how everything that we have is, is from God and it is in the wisdom of Christ. It is Christ, our wisdom, our righteousness. These things are, are counted to us as, as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ. We are counted righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. We are sanctified through faith in Jesus Christ. As he takes us and he sets us apart as his holy people. He redeems us uh, through Jesus Christ. We, we, our debts have been paid. But in the Christian life, he intends for us to work knowing that God is going to repay us. And he is going to give us a wage. It's sort of like this. Imagine, imagine that there is a son who has a father who is a multi-billionaire owner of, of corporations. 
and the son, the son knows that he could never earn a job with his dad. I mean, there's no way that he could go and be VP of marketing or the, or the chief operating officer of any of these multinational billion dollar companies on his own. He doesn't really have the brain power to go to Harvard. He doesn't have the abilities to make these things work. But, but because he is connected with the father, his father gives him a job. And he works at that job and he gets a paycheck for that job. The analogy is not perfect, but we ought, what we ought to know is that that we are, as God's workers, as God's co-workers, we expect our Father, and that's who, who God is to us, to repay. He is a generous God. And God uses all kinds of motivations to move us along in the Christian life. For some of us, gratitude does not motivate us on some given days. But reward does. Love does not motivate us on some given days. But fear does. And we are told to, to fear and delight and to do things because they're, they're our duty and they're our delight and they're because of love and out of fear and, and for reward and out of gratitude. All these things are motivations in the Christian life. And we see these reflected in the scriptures. So Paul is saying that, that we can work for God in this way as, as preachers and teachers, as workers for God and expect to receive wages. And it's not only, it's not only preachers and teachers. It's not only gospel workers. It's not only apostles and prophets. But Paul uses the same kind of wording in some place like Colossians 3, 23 and 24. He says, work, work heartily as if for the Lord and not for men. And the Lord will reward you according to your work. All of us are in this place where when we are working, we are working for God and we can expect that he would reward us for our work. Now then, he also says, we are God's workers. We are God's fellow workers. That is, God, we are working for God. At the same time that we want to make sure that we put our work in its proper place, we are God's workers. And so there's something, there's something almost a, like, like belonging to a certain ball club or belonging to a certain, uh, belonging to a certain company. Hey, you might, you might just be doing the lowest level job. But belonging to a good company, belonging to the right person makes a difference. We are God's fellow workers. And so we see what, what it is. How should we think of those who are, who are preachers and teachers? Well, we ought to think of them as, as God's workers. But it's God who gives the growth. It doesn't undermine our, our motivation, but we ought to know that God is the one who gives the growth. So we've seen that, that preachers and teachers, they are, they are God's workers. And as much as we are contributing to the building up of God's church, we are God's workers. And next, we see God's building. God's building. Let's start with verse 9 again and read, read through verse 15 with me. It says, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. 
If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So Paul says, he switches the, the analogy. They, they are God's workers, but he says you, he's talking about that, that's plural there. That is the church in Corinth. That is, that is us as a church. That is the church of God. You are God's field. And then he switches the analogy. He says, you are God's building. And then he goes on, he elaborates on it, starting in verse 10. He says, according to the grace God gave me. So everything, all of this work that Paul is doing, it is God's working in him. So the, the same way that uh, we can talk about in, in Philippians uh, 2, 12, and 13, it is, it is God's will and, and pleasure to work within us. So he is the one who is, who is willing it in us and working in us. He is the one who causes the motivation. He is the one who causes the desire. He is the one who causes, uh, works in us the power to accomplish it. So it's God who is doing this. But then Paul says, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And that word translated skilled there, you, you miss it in the translation, but it's actually the word that is normally translated wise. So Paul does not, Paul, Paul does not work according to worldly wisdom, but he is a wise builder. And so he laid, he is laying this foundation, and he clarifies, he says in verse 10, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. This is why, that's why we can apply these things to, to Apollos. We can apply these things to preachers and teachers who come behind someone like Paul. We're, we're not apostles, but we are those who come behind and build on the foundation that he's laid. And he says, he clarifies, he says, let each one take care how he builds upon it, that is upon the foundation. And we'll come back to that in just a second. Verse 11, he says, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul, is, Paul talks about this in some place like Galatians. He, he makes it clear that there is no other gospel besides the one that he preached. That is righteousness in Jesus Christ. You can only be forgiven of your sins. You can only be justified before God by Jesus Christ because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so what you do is you abandon everything else. You renounce all of your own, your own righteousness, all of your own power, and you rely completely upon Jesus Christ. What Paul says is that false teachers come and they try and lay a different foundation. Now, false teachers don't normally come behind and say, you know what, you don't have to worry about the cross of Jesus Christ, forget all that. You know, they don't normally have to, they don't normally come behind and say, hey, we're just going to abandon all truth and only believe falsehood. Uh, by the way, I'm actually a wolf, I'm not a, I'm not a teacher. So they don't, they, don't do, they don't come out and do that. They, they give a little bit of the truth, but they mix things with it. And if we think about what Paul is addressing here, he's talking about human wisdom and human power. This is the danger of human wisdom and human power, of basing our salvation on human wisdom or power, of boasting in human wisdom or power. It is, it is a small difference whether it is human works or human wisdom that we are basing our salvation on. Both are faulty. Both will fail us. The only foundation for for salvation, the only foundation for the teaching of God's word is on the foundation of Christ and him crucified. There is no other foundation to put on. There is no other one that will, will be rock solid for us. And so he says, any other, the, the implication is any other, any other teacher, anyone who comes after him builds, if he builds on another foundation besides Jesus Christ, he is not teaching the word of God. You move away from him. 
like the plague, you get away, you get away from the false teacher. He is building on a, on a false foundation. Something besides Jesus Christ and him crucified. And this is the danger of the, the pragmatism that is at work in the church and in our, in our world, in our area today. That is the danger of it. That people would build on human wisdom and human power. It's okay to be pragmatic. That is, to think about what works. But pragmatism is where, where churches, where leaders begin to only think about what works. And by works, they mean what will build attendance and what will increase contributions. I don't want to be so crass about it. Many of them have, have good intentions. We'll see how people can, in a minute, how workers can, can have things mixed. And yet we, we, we need to see the danger of that. And you wouldn't know it by, by the, the lack of discernment that some, some Christians uh, have, but they don't recognize how dangerous it is. But Paul is basically devoting four chapters and a quarter of this letter to saying, don't boast in human wisdom or power. Don't do it. Because Paul knows what really works. And by works, he means what is it that genuinely saves sinners? And that is the preaching of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we can't we can't give in as it can be enticing to to think about what is it? What is it that will give us more applause? What will give us more noticeable, immediate and obvious results? What will make people like like my preaching the way that they liked Apollos' preaching? People love to hear Apollos preach. But Paul said, we're both working for God and it is God who causes the growth. Now then, he says there, uh, now then, going back to verse 10, he says, Let each one of you care how he builds upon it, that is, upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. And then verse 12, he says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. So you can see that there are these, there are really these two, two there, there are six kinds of building materials there, but there are two basic categories. And they kind of point in two different directions. So you have the you have the gold and the silver and the precious stones. These would be the precious stones would be things like granite and marble. These would be things that would be worthy of the temple of God. Go back and read about what the temple was made out of. This was supposed to be uh, to be the symbol of God's presence among the people. There were there were only certain materials that were were worthy of being used in the temple. And so Paul is saying, let each one be careful how he builds. You need to use the best materials possible. Use the best materials possible. Those others, the, these are materials that are good for building temples, and then there are, there are materials that are good for building huts, okay? The church of God is not a hut. The church of God is a temple. You build with that. And then you can see in verses, uh, ver <coughs> looking at uh, verse 13, not only that they are about the, about the worth of these materials, but about their durability. It says each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. The day that he's talking about there is is the day of the Lord or judgment day or the last day. It is the last day of time in which everything is 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 assessed by God. And what he's saying there is that that that. That, wood, that gold and that silver and that marble, those, those precious things that are, are built with, 
Those things endure. Those things last into eternity. But those things that are, are like wood and hay and stubble, they get burned up. We think about what Paul is saying here, and if we think of these, this mixture of materials as, as uh, human wisdom and human power being mixed with God's wisdom, what's going to happen to human wisdom and human power? Paul's already said that the rulers of this age, those people who are most powerful in this age, they are passing away. Those things that are worked for here, that are only, only wood and hay and stubble, those things will be consumed on the last day. And so we have to be careful with how we build. We have to build with what is true, build with what is right, build with, with the truth of God's word. We are building upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, the, the foundation that was laid by the apostles and the prophets. We are to build on it with those things that are the word of God. Not human wisdom, not human power, not human innovation, not human ingenuity. It's the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The, our, our, our first course of action is devotion to, to passing on what has already been given, not coming up with new ways to, to pass it on or new, or new ideas, but to pass on what's already been delivered. Now then, he says, be careful how you build because this is, this is what's going, going to happen. If you look at verse 14, he says, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. You can see the connection there to verse 8 earlier where he was talking about wages. Don't you know that God, God has given us every incentive for doing the work and doing the work well? God has given us every incentive for, for working for him and building according, building with good materials, working hard, doing what he has, he has commanded us to do. He's given us every incentive. He tells us what is right. He tells us what's our duty. He tells us that these things are, are our delight. He changes our hearts. He, he causes us to love. He causes us to, to know that, that, uh, that he is a consuming fire. He makes us know that he gives rewards. He gives us things to be grateful for. He, he knows how to incentivize. He knows how to motivate us. We have every good reason to do the work of God in the way that he has told us to do it. So let's do it the way that he's told us to do it. Now then, he says there, he will receive a reward. And so we, we, we are justified in working for a reward that God is going to give us. Something that we know that based on the generosity and the goodness of God is going to be beyond what we deserve, beyond what we can imagine. But we know that he notices and he sees everything that we do. And in, in good time, he is going to reward us for our service. Now then, he also says that the work that, uh, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now then, we can see that there is, there is a category of, of teacher, uh, of worker, whose work is mixed, who they themselves, they believe in Jesus Christ, and they trust in him, but they are also so tempted, so so pulled by the by the by the by the promise of what human wisdom and human power promise. And so their work is mixed. And he says, and this is difficult to understand, but we have to do justice to what Paul says. He says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. 
even though he himself will be saved. So think of it in this way. Even even the person who is a mixed worker has every reason to look forward to the coming of Jesus Christ, to the day of judgment, because on that day he will be saved. We always have every reason to look forward to the coming of Jesus Christ because we will be saved. At the same time, he will suffer loss when he sees. And I think that what this is, is that when he sees all that he worked for burned up. When he saw the ways that he trusted in human wisdom and in human power, when he sees those things done away with, uh, he will he will suffer in himself. He will suffer loss. This loss will not it will not detract. It will not eternally detract from his enjoyment of eternal life. But he will suffer loss. He will see that what he did was not was not what God had commanded him to do. And this is not only for those who are preachers and teachers. This is not only for gospel workers. Paul uses the same kinds of analogies in other places. He talks about in Second Corinthians five. He says that each of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give give an answer for what we have done for the deeds that we have done in the body. He says in some place like Romans. 14, 10 through 12, he says, each of us will stand before the judgment seat of God and we will give an account for what we have done. We will give an account to the Lord. We will give an account to Jesus Christ. We will give an account to God for what we have done. And so we ought to be motivated. We ought to know what this does is it takes everything that we do in this present time and it gives it eternal significance. Some of us think, and there is a way of thinking about the Christian life that is erroneous, that thinks that what I do doesn't matter because I'm saved already. And Paul is saying, everything you do matters. You will give an account for everything that you've done in the body. That is the way that God works in our conscience, that makes us care about everything that we do. There is nothing that we ought to do where we just throw it away. As if it didn't matter. Paul never says, hey, it doesn't really matter how you teach. It doesn't matter how you work. Because you're going to be saved in the end. It doesn't really matter. Paul instead says, he says, to motivate us in the here and now, he says, if you don't build with the right materials, it's going to be burned up. And he's mostly applying that to preachers and teachers here. But we see in other places how it applies to all of us. That we ought to work. We ought to work hard. We have good reason with a clear conscience to do what is right. In every case that we have to do it. We also see the grace of God. I want you to see that, that, that this idea of rewards and, and loss at the end does not, does not take away the grace of God. Because think of it this way, even the mixed worker, the worker who works with mixed materials, even he gets saved, okay? He barely gets saved. He barely gets saved as one who, who escapes from, from a burning building or who escapes from the fire. But even that mixed worker is saved, not because of his own works, but because of Jesus Christ. And so all of us, all of us can know and all of us can rest in Jesus Christ. There, there's not any fear of condemnation 
But there is this sense of, hey, I, I want to have everything that I do now. I want it to go into eternity with me. I want it to have significance into eternity because these things that are based only on human wisdom or human power, those things are being burned up. Those things are worthless. Now then, we see there, next we see God's warning. We see God's warning. Verses 16 and 17. He says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. You can notice there, there's a little footnote in my Bible. You may have it in your Bible as well. That Where it says, do you not know that you, that that you is plural? He's talking about the church there. He's not talking about individual Christians at this point. He's talking about uh, Christians as a group. He's talking about Christians gathered together in the church. This is the, this is the congregation of all those who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Who are gathered together out of, out of the world. And so he says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So there he's talking about God's temple. In the, in the Old Testament, starting with the tabernacle, uh, there was the idea that the, the tabernacle was the place of God's dwelling among his people. I think just recently, a couple weeks ago, somebody said that they were reading through Numbers and they were kind of struggling with it. Uh, I, I love the book of Numbers because there at the beginning of Numbers, you have this, you, you have this, picture of the tribes where they're supposed to camp and you kind of if you don't know what he's talking about maybe you wonder it doesn't really matter where they camp I don't care where they camp but where they the way that they are camped is they have the tabernacle in the middle and they have three, three tribes to the north and three tribes to the south and three tribes to the west and three tribes to the east they have 12 tribes all the way around because God is dwelling in the midst of his people and when they start out on the march you got six tribes in front and you got six tribes in back because God is in the is traveling in the midst of his people later on when the temple is built the temple is built in jerusalem that is the that's the political and religious center of of israel and so there is god dwelling in the midst of his people there that's where the king that's where god's king dwells uh, that's where god's temple is that's where god lives but we know that the temple of the old testament was only a shadow it was a shadow and now we have the substance Jesus came and dwelt among us. Literally in John 1.14, it, it is that he came and tabernacled among us. In John 2, it, he talks about how, how he, he said, I will tear down this temple and rebuild it in, in three days. And he was talking about the temple of his body. The, at the place that, we, that God came and dwelt with us was in Jesus Christ. And he is now the one through whom we have access to God. If you will return from your sins and trust in him, you have access to God through Jesus Christ. In John chapters 14 through 16, he begins to talk to his, to his disciples about how he's going to have to leave. He's about to, he's about to ascend. And he tells them, don't be troubled. But you could understand why they would be troubled. God in the flesh is about to leave them. But he says, I'm going to send another, one who is like me. He's talking about the Spirit. And so what's happened now is that, that that shadow that was in the Old Testament, we now have the substance of it through Jesus Christ. We have the Spirit dwelling in us. He dwells in us as individuals. He, he more importantly, dwells among us as a people of God. 
And so we are the ones among whom God dwells. We are the ones among whom God's spirit dwells. We are, look at what he says. If anyone, now he says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. You remember what I said earlier? You don't like to have things. You don't like to have someone come behind you and tear down what you worked for. You don't like to have what you worked hard on be undone. God is giving a warning to those who would harm God's church. This is God's people. They're his temple. Don't mar, don't mutilate, don't tamper with, don't destroy God's temple. And I think there are two groups of people that this is targeted at. Number one is false teachers. Despite what we, we, we may, we have a hard time talking about false teachers sometimes because we don't want to be, we don't want to be harsh. I certainly don't want to be harsh. And yet Jesus and the apostles, uh, along with all the prophets of the Old Testament, are very, are, are very clear in giving warnings against false teaching. False, false teaching is a very clear and ever-present danger that we need to be aware of. And do you ever feel, but, but do you see all of the false teaching that is out there and you, you see how people are being led astray by it and do you ever feel distressed? Do you ever feel like, God, how, how could you allow so much error and so much falsehood and so many people to be led astray? How, how do you let that happen? But here God says, I will destroy the one who destroys my people. So on the one hand, we always ought to, we ought to be clear and ready to warn against false teaching and against false teachers. We also ought to know that in the end, God will deal with all false teaching. He will deal with it. And so we ought not think that God is not just. God is just, and he will enact vengeance on all those who oppose God's people, who hurt God's people, who, who teach falsely. I think the second group that he is targeting here is those who are dividing the church. It, it's amazing how lightly people treat church. They, they, uh, they, uh, they neglect it. They mock it. They, they mock the church. They, they teach falsely in the church. They divide the church. They, they cause strife in the church. Remember, there are people here in the church in Corinth who are, who are dividing over their, their devotion to certain teachers. Paul is saying, you be careful. Don't treat the church of God lightly. God will destroy all of those who harm God's church. That pushes us back the other direction, doesn't it? Makes us want to love God's church and nurture God's church. To build God's church. To, to work on God's building in the way that God has told us to because he says for God's temple is holy and you are that temple the church is the temple of God you you he's, he's speaking to the church in Corinth he says earlier about them he says in the introduction in verses uh, he says that that to to the church in Corinth the church of God the church of God is the temple. 
this church is is the temple of God, the 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 church that is gathered of all saints out of out of all nations who would trust in Jesus Christ. It is the temple of God and it is it is a holy people. We are a holy people. And so just to sum up, this is this is what God this is what Paul has taught us to do. We have to think rightly about two different groups of people. We have to think rightly about God's workers. We ought not think too highly of them. We ought not base our salvation in what any one man does in, in human wisdom or human power. We ought not hope in them. We have to think rightly about them. They're God's fellow workers, and that has a certain dignity to it. But they're only workers. They're only servants of God. Let's not think too highly of them. Now then, we ought to think rightly about God's building, about God's church. It's almost as if we cannot think of it too highly. God's church is those, it is all those who have been gathered out of, out of the world, out of sin, by the blood of Jesus Christ. How could you think, how could you take the church lightly? What's more, how could you work against the church? And so if we will think about, think about God's workers and God's church rightly, then we will give glory to God because he is the one who is growing his church. So let us think rightly. Let us think with sound judgment about people of all kinds. And let us love the church and give God the glory. Uh, Father, uh, thank you for your word. And please transform our thinking so that we would think your thoughts after you so that we would think about people rightly not too highly, not too lowly. Especially help us to love your church in the way that Jesus Christ loved your church. To honor your church, to love your church, to refuse to neglect your church or to harm your church, but instead in every way help us to work, help us to work for, for what is right. To build with good materials and to honor those that you have redeemed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. When Jesus, uh, the night that he was betrayed, he gave a meal to his disciples. And he, he gave them two ways of looking at it. He wanted them to look back. Now I want you to